Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, the broadcaster Faker Others, and Dominic Fifield of The Athletic. It was hardly a fulsome farewell. Everton announced the sacking of Rafa Benitez in a 40-word statement that demeaned all concerned. Farhad Moshiri, the owner, is looking for his sixth permanent manager in six years. One of those men, Roberto Martinez, has been installed as favourite to take over. Meanwhile, the club has no director of football, no head of recruitment, no medical director. It's just needlessly sold one of its best players. So, Faye, is this an object lesson in how not to run a football club? Well, pretty much so over the past six years. It's been uh, chaotic to to say the least, hasn't it? I don't think anybody really understands what direction Everton Football Club is going in. It's all very well having high ambitions. You know, the, the stadium is, is fantastic in, in prospect, but when you've spent... Five hundred million pounds over that on transfers over the over your tenure, and then you're looking at basically the highest you've finished since Farhad Mashiri's taken over as seventh in the Premier League. I don't really think that's a fantastic return on investment, is it? And that is because, from an outsider looking in, everything is so scattergun in what they do. They switch between managing philosophies, transfer policy is is all over the place. I mean, why bring a manager like Rafa Benitez in in the first place if the structure of your football club has a director of football there and Rafa Benitez is somebody who likes to have control of absolutely everything? There's clearly going to be a conflict at some point, which is exactly what's happened. And you listed it there. Medical director, head of recruitment, manager of scouting, director of football, all gone. Well, who's going to come in and do all of those jobs? You've basically got to recruit all of those individual positions or have somebody come in to do all of them, which is, you know, the older school mod- model, if you like. So it feels as if Farhad Mashiri has just not really planned anything out in in great length and there's no strategy at Everton Football Club. And, and that's really worrying. And that's why the fans are so frustrated. Yeah, I think, it, well, it's a, it's a, a, a problem with so many different levels I suppose isn't it Dom 
Benitez departed after 195 days, which was probably inevitable given the toxicity of the situation. If we are, as we're led to believe, waiting for Everton to do some sort of deal with the Belgian FA and, and get Martinez back, let's have a look at what they will be getting. They'll be getting a manager who'd already been sacked once by Mashiri. Everton's big problem is a lack of defensive structure and organisation. Now, with his track record, Martinez isn't the first coach you'd think, well, yeah, you can come and solve that, mate. Absolutely right. I mean, I, I suppose that they're harking back to his first season in charge of, of Everton when they finished fifth, but he, he doesn't seem an obvious choice for a as a head coach to come in to a club in this particular situation where they're on the fringes, still on the fringes, but on the fringes of a relegation battle. Their form is abysmal, confidence is low. I don't think he he would have the calibre of player even that he was working with when he was at Everton the first time round in many ways. I mean, he had Lukaku on the, on the books during his first stint in charge, for example. So it's and it's not going to be an easy an easy job to to extricate him from even part time from from the Belgian Football Federation. Not not least because he not only is he the the head coach of the national team in a World Cup year. Not a World Cup year, the World Cup's being played in the summer, but actually in the middle of the, the next season, if you see what I mean. But he's also the technical director of the Belgian FA as well. So what are we saying? He's going to do three jobs over the course of 2022 before leaving his position with, with Belgium after the World Cup. It, it just seems far too risky, to be honest. But then it, it, it's it's early days almost, you know, since since Benitez has left the club, and I do wonder whether whether they they will get a better grasp of the obstacles lying in the way of of Martinez's reappointment and end up going in a completely different direction. Because, as Faye says, everything about that club is haphazard. So, you know, why should we expect them even to to their next choice? Is he going to be anything like Martinez? Probably not, to be honest. I mean, we've already heard the suggestions that they've sounded out Jose Mourinho I mean I talk about polar opposites it's uh, it's just vaguely ludicrous really mm, and you know Mourinho you know let's be honest is looking like a busted flush isn't he at Roma and also we have you know football is an emotional business is there a sometimes a danger fight of over romanticism here you know is this perhaps too soon for someone like Wayne Rooney to go back although He's had a you know a hugely impressive first year in management at Derby, hasn't he? Yeah, he really has, particularly bearing in mind all the things going on behind the scenes at Derby. He's he's not only been contending with that, he's managed to be getting results on the pitch as well and you know gosh, if he he manages to keep them up, it would just be a fantastic achievement. But we do always get too excited, don't we? We did exactly the same with Frank Lampard when he went back to, to Chelsea, obviously in, in, in tough circumstances at Chelsea as well. It just doesn't always work. I think Wayne Rooney has come out and said he'd always find it very difficult to turn down the opportunity to, to go to Everton. 
but I feel as if he and he probably feels as if he maybe needs a little bit more experience behind his belt before he takes on an appointment like that. We've seen it with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as well. We've seen it in the past. You know, you can can hark back as far as Ozzy Ardiles at at, at Tottenham. Just because a player is a remarkable legend for you, it doesn't mean he's an excellent manager and is going to, you know, propel you to, to the kind of status that he propelled you to when he was on the pitch. So I think it's it, it's tough in that way. And it, it still feels every single time you hear managers linked uh, to a club like Everton, it feels as if Farhad Mashiri wants the Hollywood appointment, if you like, that whatever is going to get the, the best and most exciting headlines in a way, you feel as if perhaps he wouldn't necessarily have thought about Graham Potter had Graham Potter's stock have risen so much recently whereas other clubs will have had their eye on Graham Potter for a long time because he's an excellent manager and he's the type of person that you'd want to 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 change your 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 football club and have a different philosophy but it now feels as if oh someone said that Graham Potter's good so let's stick him there as well and that is not the way to do things and the romanticism of any of those appointments particularly Wayne Rooney for me is not the best way to go. Mm. There was one line in Benitez's farewell statement which which stood out for me, Dom, where he said, it's only when you're inside that you realise the magnitude of the task. Let's look at that task. We shouldn't really be talking in these terms, but are Everton in danger of going down? Well, nine defeats in 13, is it? I mean, it is relegation form. I think they've probably still got enough quality within that group, not least with Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison now fit again, to pull themselves well clear of, of trouble. There's no long-termism to any of it. I mean, it's that that is a legacy of overspending in previous under previous regimes and managerial regimes and indeed previous technical directors. But that is that's for the future. I think they've got enough to stay up, but but only if they only if they make an appointment who has an immediate effect i mean confidence will be fractured at that club and they can't sort of meander they I, which makes all these the suggestion that they could even turn to duncan ferguson for the rest of the season i, I don't again it doesn't make a lot of sense to me i think they they do need somebody there who can can get them through this difficult period and 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 survive and and stay well clear and then and then they have to plan beyond that but we may be into another situation where you you're appointing almost another firefighter and, and like many clubs out there they've probably gone through all the firefighters now <laughs> you know, imagine if they imagine if the sort of outcry if they they end up looking at figures like Sam Allardyce again it's 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 I don't know it's it's broken it's I think people are people are tired of this and they, they they want to see some some proper vision and i suppose you know you could look at it and think well you know rafa cleared out a load of a load of the staff in, in, in the back room from medical staff to recruitment staff now he's gone as well they've got rid of what some people suggested was a troublemaker in in, in dina he certainly didn't see to eye to eye with benitez at least whoever does come in has got a completely uh he can he can start from scratch and almost build build again but 
that process is going to be very, very costly and at a club that's already spent half a billion pounds. So <sighs> there are too many, too many factions, too many, there's too much politics behind it all. There's, there's too many people with figures of influence there and figures of influence who are sort of on vogue one minute and then ditch the next. It's, it's not how you run a football club. You need to have some kind of philosophy and vision. And, you know, go back to Potter. That's exactly what he had at Brighton. They, they brought him in for the long term and they gave him time and they were patient and they waited and now they're reaping the rewards of that. Mm. And this is exactly the point, Mike, isn't it? Is that I, I think nobody's going to want to go to Everton if they know that their their vision of the club isn't going to get listened to. And also, no director of football necessarily is going to want to go to Everton, having seen what, what's what gone on. That, that Farhad Mashiri's already had two in, in his tenure. And Marcel Brands left saying there was a clear difference in vision and direction. Well, everybody's going to be looking at that around football and thinking, yeah, I don't think I want to, I want to jump on board that ship either. Mm. Faye, you, you know, we know that... that managerial careers are usually a, a series of, of sliding doors moments, aren't they? With Benitez, could he or should he have waited for Newcastle after making that lucrative but really flawed decision to move to China? Possibly. Benefits of hindsight. I mean, it took so long, exactly, didn't yeah. it, the takeover? I think his race had been won, really. He couldn't really do anything. They were treading water at Newcastle, which probably actually is in a better position than they are now, slowly sinking. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, that, that that's difficult. You, you could constantly, as you say, sliding doors is exactly the right analogy for it. I, I think uh, a lot of faith would have had to be put in there and eventually the fans, no matter how popular he was on Tyneside, eventually the fans would have got frustrated. Sure. You're talking of, of frustrated fans, you know, Newcastle, one win in 10 under Eddie Howe, Dom, pitched out the FA Cup by Cambridge. You know, I know this is ludicrously early, but we are talking about football here. Is Eddie Howe on rapidly thinning ice, do you think? I, I don't think you appoint Eddie Howe in whenever it was November, October, November time, uh, and then get rid of him before the end of that season. Or I mean, you're appoint, again, you're appointing a manager that you believe can revive a football club over the long term. Uh, somebody that that's I mean, it's it's almost impossible for him to. They're bringing in players now, but I think we all accepted that the. the the playing staff that that have been treading water there for so long weren't good enough. So, what are we asking him to perform miracles with 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 them? I mean, they, they're getting new faces through the building now. You, you have to you have to wait until the transfer window is closed. You have to integrate those new players. You've got to hope that they they generate enough momentum to to clamber clear of trouble, and then you reassess in the summer and probably after another window or two windows or three windows. And, and and again, you have to back him. That's it, it's the first test of of whether these this ownership has has got a long term vision for for Newcastle United Football Club, or whether it's just going to be swayed and panicked by by early teething problems. Really, I mean, I think I think if you're Newcastle fans, you have to have faith in Eddie Howe and 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 Tyndall and 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 what they want to do at that club, and you have to back them. And stay patient, and just hope they, that the quality comes through. That they, the quality that they recruit this month comes through, bears its teeth, 
and keeps you out of trouble. It's not been particularly impressive, but then I don't think we really expected it to be impressive. I mean, that, that squad was so lacking in so many areas. It just felt like a championship squad. And at the moment, it's playing like one. Hopefully, with a few more additions this, this month, they, they will still have enough quality to clear, to clear themselves of the bottom three and then they can carry on their rebuild afterwards. Yeah, it does seem, Faye, that familiar flaws aren't really being addressed, though. You know, think about it. Um, they've dropped more points, I think it's 21, from winning positions than anyone in the Premier League now. How worried do you think Newcastle fans should be about that? Well, I think they've all resigned themselves to the fact that they, they, they may go down this season. But I think the vision of the new owners is something for Newcastle fans to, to genuinely be excited about. I think now they need to buy for survival, which is not ideal in, in the January transfer market. But that is their primary objective because then they can start, as Dom said, to to build from next season as I understand it there's already plenty going on behind the scenes you know trying to 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 inject enthusiasm into the into the players and and get them to realize that that things are go are you know going in an upward to trajectory but it's on the pitch that Eddie Howe has to make the real dent and that, that's the problem I, I think really they need defensive solidity they, they've got to try and find a decent defender in this in the last two weeks of the window for sure you look at Jamal Lascelles you know he was at fault for for Watford's equaliser really poor giving away sloppy balls all the time that they've got they've got to close those kind of mistakes down 88th minute Jao Pedro's equaliser. I mean, they were they were so close to just giving themselves a little bit more breathing space. When you've got Callum Wilson obviously out out injured, Chris Wood having only scored three goals for Burnley this season coming in, you know, by all accounts he's he's a good presence in terms of, you know, a good presence in the dressing room, which is certainly what what they need. And Kieran Trippier will definitely be that, having had experience interviewing Kieran on many occasions. He's certainly somebody you would want in that dressing room to be galvanising the players and making sure they're fully focused on the second part of the season to try and keep Newcastle up because that is number one priority. Then you can start looking at, at, at what you do for the future. They are mm. being quite sensible at Newcastle in terms of their long-term appointments. Though. I mean, the technical director... The, you know, the backroom staff, the administrative staff within this, the, the club, they're not making knee-jerk, we need someone in mm. now, let's just get anybody in. It's, they're they're you know, doing an interview process, making sure that they try and appoint the right people. It's difficult for them, given that they're, you know, it would be, ideally, they'd love to have had that technical director in place to help smooth in, bring in the incoming transfers this month. But, you know, needs must. They're, they're building for the future in that regard and they're hoping that they can get some short-term quality through the door using Eddie Howe's contacts, using, by all accounts, the, the contacts of, you know, the, almost the agents of the of the players that they've bought. I mean, Kieran Trippier is the one that's... Kieran Trippier's agent is the one that's supposed to have alerted them to the fact that there was a buyout clause in Chris in Chris Wood's contract. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's that... It's, it's that in... You know the, the minutiae. Uh, uh, it, it goes down to that. You just get by as as best you can in this difficult month. And you know the, the long term for that club, with that financial backing. You know, forget the forget the ethics, forget the morals of it all. Just for a second, put that to one side. You know, football wise, they 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 should have a very bright future because they they'll be, they'll be 
backed by vast sums of money, but but the short term is is still awkward and still difficult. And really, putting pressure on on Eddie Howe now is isn't what they need to do. They need to just back him and and trust in him. Yeah, the problem, I suppose, Faye, is that that managers are increasingly short term animals, aren't they? Short term items. You know, you think about Antonio Conte. It's pretty pointless employing someone like him if you don't back him financially. You know, I know you were meant to be watching his team yesterday, and we'll get into those those issues a lot later. But do you see some signs of impatience there already? Well, I think Conte in himself is an impatient man, and he he says what he thinks in in interviews, doesn't he? <laughs> he just mm. you know that there's there's no uh, there's God no bless filter. Him. There's no, there's no filter and, and you've got to love that about him, to be honest. I, I, I know exactly what you mean in terms of short-termism, but that, that's the world that we live in now. Uh, there, there is no patience. People want results. They want them now. Conte, I would very much doubt, is the type of person that would not have done his own due diligence on a club like Tottenham and would have had a conversation with Daniel Levy about the future of Tottenham Hotspur and again it feels as if they're perhaps well I mean we've been talking about the process at at Tottenham for a little while that that they're going through a a little bit of of turmoil but you know that they're actually in a much better position than anybody kind of gives them credit for at the moment they've got two games in hand as as well going in pushing for that top four spot and under a manager like Antonio Conte I think even without any massive recruitment in January, he's come out himself and said that you, you can't do good business in January or it's very difficult. You can't, because you can, you can do good business in January, but it's very, very difficult. And perhaps I think he will be backed financially in the summer because I don't think he would have gone to Tottenham unless he had those assurances that he would be. Sure. And, you know, as you said, I think they've only played 18 games. So if they, mm. if they, if they win those games in hand, I think they're third above Chelsea. Yep. Um, so, you know, I suppose in some ways, Dom, that's a strange season in a nutshell, isn't it? You know, we, we, we're basically writing writing off Spurs, as a, you know, as a club in, you know, some sort of disarray. Players need to be dispatched elsewhere. You've got a manager who is not quite sure whether he's going to get the backing that he des- he feels he deserves. Yet, you know, they could quite easily ch- qualify for the Champions League. Yeah, but we're talking like that because their performances of late have been absolutely awful. Morecambe in the FA Cup, the two semi-finals against Chelsea in the League Cup, utterly, utterly underwhelming. I mean, that's 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 why we we know they've they've appointed a, a brilliant coach. We we know he'll do one wonders on the training ground. He will improve players who have been underachieving. He will also whinge incessantly about the fact that he he needs better players in the building that's what he did he, his interviews at present and I, this is from somebody who actually really likes Antonio Conte by the way <laughs> but his interviews at present are second season Chelsea interviews his yes. mood is exactly <laughs> the same as it was then it's, it's it's not you know it's not the first season giddiness it's the second season the world is against me and I, I need better tools to work with well he was never going to get those tools in in the mid season window. He he might well get them in the summer because, as Faye says, he wouldn't have gone there without some kind of pledge. 
So maybe maybe this is his his attempt to promote some realism in terms of what what Chelsea uh, sorry what Spurs can achieve this season. I I think this I think he will make have an effect, and I think they will challenge for that top four, and then they will probably do very well in those games in hand, and and you know it'll be a better reflection of of the quality that Chelsea I keep calling them Chelsea I've got to stop doing that sorry <laughs> sorry Antonio they're, actually, they're playing Chelsea <laughs> yeah, the next, next Sunday, Sunday exactly <laughs> that's going to get confusing of a yet of that, of that match that came oh, three times in two and a half weeks but look it's <laughs> in in time Spurs will will probably find that level and it will it is sort of fourth fifth possibly sixth that is where they sh- they should be but he he he's going to be an angry man on the touchline for a for a lot of it, because they've been playing poorly. They've been playing badly. That's that's the bottom line. Mm. What about Manchester United, Faye? Are we, are we looking here you know, at yet another example of flawed thinking from the top? We've got Ralph Ranick having having to teach on the job, essentially. Now, you know, what does that say about the sort of players that he inherited? And almost the weaknesses of that interim job in strategic terms are being highlighted now because... You know, a new permanent manager will come in, he'll have his own idea. So therefore, it doesn't look like there's going to be any, any movement in the January transfer window when everyone has been crying out for, you know, for, for ages that they need a defensive midfield player. Yeah, at least. But again, the strategy at Manchester United has been very haphazard. We've been talking about it for such a long time now and... Richard Arnold has so much to do when he officially takes over from Ed Woodward on the 1st of February. It's going to be really interesting. I think the infighting this weekend was also very interesting, or outfighting, if you like, because it was it, mm. it's gone public, which again seems to be another uh, another thing at the moment when you think about Rafa Benitez and Luca Dean and that argument playing out, and now it's Ralph Ranić versus Anthony Martial. That immediately smacks of problems behind the scenes you, you you keep these kind of things behind closed doors you obviously got a player who who wants who wants out you've got an interim manager who you know w- will certainly not have any patience with with a player with any kind of dissent who knows which one is is true you know Ranić claiming that Martial refused to be part of the squad for the trip to Aston Villa, but Martial completely denied that on on social media. And that, you know, going back to your original question, just just shows there's something not quite right within the club and, and strategy is a huge part of that. So it will be interesting to see whether once Richard Arnold comes comes in, you know, obviously he's already obviously doing some work behind the scenes already, but officially on the first of February whether these kind of things will be shut down because there's so many leaks in that club and that's a huge problem and that's a huge f- problem from the top down. Yes, yeah, certainly. And, and even on the pitch, you know, you looked at that collapse at Villa Dom, you know, at best that was an un- untimely blow to morale. You know, that, there was a complete failure of game management there. That suggests to me, actually, that they may well be vulnerable at Brentford on Wednesday. OK, Brentford were beaten quite comfortably by Liverpool on Sunday but at home you know, I can see them turning Manchester United over yeah possibly and Brentford on their day will give anyone a, a really good game they've, they've stretched better teams than Manchester United this season and, and yeah and game management comes into it and, and that's maybe what you'd ask a 
top quality defense defensive midfielder to to organize out on the pitch so maybe that goes back to what you were suggesting that they're lacking in the market but you know I, I again they've they've made a they've made a short term appointment in Ranić to the end of the season with this sort of rather cryptic and unclear role that he's going to have as a consultant for a period of time after that the assumption being that he's going to play some part in in choosing the man who succeeds him well I, I, we should probably only judge it when we when we know who their permanent appointment is in terms of in terms of vision in terms of philosophy etc but at the moment it just feels as if they're in a in a holding pattern like like so many clubs really and unfortunately holding patterns don't tend to get you into Champions League places or even challenging for, for titles at the top of the Premier League. Mm. Yeah, comparisons are quickly becoming less relevant, Faye, but, but City's dominance, to me at least, seems to highlight United's failings. You know, They press brilliantly. They've moulded fantastic individuals like you know De Bruyne, Sterling, into a team pattern. Everything that United have failed to do, they're doing. But they've got Pep Guardiola. <laughs> Manchester United have not had a manager that's been able to do what Pep Guardiola has done at Manchester City, working alongside owners who have wanted to improve Manchester City and have gone about things the right way with the right strategy, with a few question marks along the way from from the beginning. And I think that's what is so important when... If you've got money, it needs to be spent wisely. Manchester City have, have spent that wisely and then they got a quality coach in, in Pep Guardiola and everything comes together. And that's what the other side of Manchester has been unable to achieve. Did we all sit here and, and say and, and question what Manchester City were doing when when Pellegrini was in charge and they were they were making appointments in the in the in the background and you know the chief, whether they the chief execs or, or directors of football, whatever, and, and they were actually putting in place all the sort of the, the framework and the foundations for this period of dominance that was capped really when Guardiola was eventually appointed. We we were probably very cynical back then. I don't I don't remember what the attitude was, but I suspect there were people saying, "Oh, this doesn't really make a lot of sense," and we've got the club doing one thing and the manager doing another and it actually that they were long-term planning they were doing exactly what we're now hoping that other these other clubs do and what Newcastle do for example making the right appointments behind the scenes so that the future looks better City did that and they're reaping the rewards of that even in that first season under Guardiola where you know Conte's Chelsea were, were, were winning the league we probably had some doubts then, and we were expressing concern that, that whether the city had got it right. Well, they had, and it was just a matter of showing a bit of patience before that quality came through. Maybe we need to, maybe we need to remind ourselves on that occasionally as well. Yeah, I think mm, it's it's true point. to it's true to say probably Dom that you know we didn't realise the significance of what City were doing no. in essentially you know bringing in the Barcelona personnel and philosophy as a job lot. They've done you know, it the right, senior management they? came over. We look at, they they've have. done it they, spot they, on, whereas Everton have done it completely wrong. I mean, Everton don't. Everton have got. <laughs> Everton had a director of football in place, so the director of football should have been. A should have shared the, the the vision that he wants with the ownership, which clearly they were at odds, 
and, and at the very least, the director of football should have shared the vision of the head coach, who actually, what they did, as Faye mentioned in the first answer, they brought in a head coach that doesn't want a director of football, he actually wants to do everything himself. It's just so dysfunctional, it's it's naivety gone mad, and it's crazy. Whereas City have actually done it the right way. And okay, they've been backed by millions and millions and millions, if not billions of pounds to do that. And it's been very, very costly exercise to put it all in place, but they have actually, they have done it correctly. And, you know, have they actually spooked the rest, Faye? We look at Chelsea. You know, do you share, you know, the common consensus that probably the title is now out of reach for them after their defeat at the Etihad on Saturday? And Chelsea... You know, Tuchel has, by common consent, been a success. He's he's coming up to his his year, his anniversary, first anniversary in charge at uh, the weekend. Yet there are so many urgent issues to solve. You know, principally, what do you do with Romelu Lukaku? Yeah, well, there seems to be something not quite right there. I, I, I'm I'm never a fan of managers calling out players in post-match interviews. I think those are the kind of conversations that you have behind the scenes. I don't like that because a lot of managers don't like the noise. You know, Thomas Tuchel's talked about it himself. He doesn't like the noise around it, but he created it. He got his drum out and started banging it. So, <laughs> you know, how can you complain about that? But it's interesting, actually, when, when you look at Chelsea, because, of course, Chelsea have won the Champions League, which Manchester City haven't. And that is Pep Guardiola's sole purpose you would expect this season so it feels as if they've right okay parked we've done the Premier League already because the minute you know I've heard this said so many times and and it's absolutely true the minute you kind of go to double figures in terms of a a lead at the top of the table it's pretty much game over probably Liverpool uh, the closest challengers because they've got a game in hand close the gap to eight but I, I still think I still think Manchester City are the strongest but they're priority is going to be the Champions League come February. Chelsea, I would suggest, need to really be looking at, at their recruitment policy, bearing in mind this this has ended up being, you know, the, 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 the main point of, of the pod today seems to be recruitment and, and where people are going wrong. Lukaku suggesting in that interview uh, with Sky Italia that they're not playing in the formation that he'd been led to believe that that they would be. He doesn't seem to be able to work when Havertz is 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 on the pitch and Werner obviously has, has had injury problems this season. I, I don't know, there's just something not quite not quite right. Then Pulisic just turns it on not very frequently. They've got amazing attack attackers on paper, but they just don't seem to be gelling together. Well, if you're recruiting those players, surely you need to look at personalities and, and football style to see whether or not they would work together on the pitch. And perhaps that's something that Chelsea haven't done. Mm. I, what surprised me, and, and, and forgive me, I can't remember who provided the stat, but Lukaku's been part of 11 different attacking combinations in 21 appearances this season, which is remarkable. There was a, a, another great stat, uh, and this came from... Um, Chelsea youth on on social media, only three of the 10 forwards that Chelsea have spent more than £30 million on in the last decade, that's Costa, Hazard and Morata, have scored more than 10 Premier League goals in a single season. Uh, To Faye's point, Dom, that highlights recruitment, doesn't it? Yeah, and and 
I'd argue that Morata is still considered to be a failure at Chelsea, albeit one that they sold at a profit, and uh, and that Diego Costa was hugely divisive and a problem for for managers at Chelsea, albeit he was a player that they sold at a profit, and that Eden Hazard was a winger when he came in and did wonderfully well for a long period, and uh, Chelsea sold for almost five times as much as they paid for him. So recruitment and recruitment, they've done bloody well in the market with those uh, to get profits on all of them and to sustain, well, to give themselves the opportunity to make further mistakes in the market without breaking the bank, weirdly. Um, The jury's out on a lot lot of these players. Lukaku, I mean, on the basis of what he did at Inter Milan, you'd you'd suggest that that he'd come back to the Premier League, a very different type of player and a, a player of proven pedigree and, and a player that with desire to do well and, and to show that he could do it in the Premier League in a, in, with a different style. And they they haven't, as Faye says, they haven't found a way of of really incorporating him into the team in an effective way and, and providing a, a supply line to him that will get the best out of him. They just simply haven't done it. And then it's been it's been compounded by, by injury and COVID. A lot of those other forward players have had spells out of the team with injury and COVID. The two most progressive wing-backs in the country, uh, aside from Robertson and, and Alexander-Arnold at, at Liverpool, are now out with long-term injury, and that has really choked Chelsea's supply and, indeed, you know, the creativity in that team. One of those cost £50 million, and I think Chilwell has, has probably proved that he's he's good enough quality and that was that was good recruitment on Chelsea's part. There are issues at at the club, clearly, but then, again, we need some context. Chelsea may well be out of the Premier League title race. In fact, let's be honest, they are out of the Premier League title race. They're not going to win the Premier League. But they could win the League Cup, the FA Cup, the FIFA Club World Cup, UEFA Super Cup they've already won, and they could retain the the Champions League this season, which wouldn't be a bad campaign. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you, you mentioned the League Cup there. The um, outstanding semi-final, uh, the return leg of it is, well, scheduled to be on Thursday with Arsenal, who, as I said, we'll talk about this towards the end of the show, but they don't come out of the postponement of the North London derby too well. They're still scheduled to play Liverpool on Thursday. Goalless after the first leg, Faye, is it too close to call this one? Yeah, I think it's pretty close. I think Liverpool were, were, were back at not quite their best, but certainly much better against Brentford than they showed against 10-man Arsenal, which you have to give massive credit to Mikel Arteta and the players for, for that performance that they put in against Liverpool because all the signs had been that they were going to completely collapse in that second half and and they and they didn't. I was actually looking forward to seeing them play against Tottenham this weekend to, to see whether or not they could build on that um, because that tends to be the biggest problem that Mikel Arteta has had this season, building on a good performance. It's so inconsistent at the Emirates, but they are at the Emirates for that second leg and that might give them a boost against Liverpool. And it was really interesting, actually. I, I didn't realise how poor Liverpool were in domestic cups under Jurgen Klopp. I was having a look at the stats and they haven't been past the fifth round of the FA Cup since since he joined. 
they're obviously in the semi-final of, of the League Cup, so that's an opportunity for him to get his first domestic trophy. But that shocked me. It almost feels like he's kind of going backwards in progression, isn't it? I know, let's do the Champions League, then the Premier League, and then we'll go back and tick off the cups. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I thought Klopp's celebrations, Dom, after that Brentford win were quite revealing, weren't they? Because, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work out that, you know, a team without Mane and Salah might struggle. Have they got over that little blip, do you think? Yeah, I think that was more born of relief. I don't, I don't think he was celebrating because he thought Liverpool were back in the title race particularly. And I don't think Manchester City will be fretting too much at the given the, the size of the gap. But after three Premier League games without a, a victory, it was, it was a timely win for, for Liverpool. And it will give them a load of confidence ahead of Thursday's semi-final second leg. And, you know, they... they that is that is the the key really. If if, if Liverpool end up the season with silverware of, of some kind, then th- then they can build again in the summer. They can they can they can crack on with with this with Klopp's um, vision and and uh, and progression. It's uh, again, it's not rocket science. It's I think any any team that's coming up against Manchester City at the moment in the Premier League title race is that is is, is there's no margin for error whatsoever. Even three games without a, without a win in the Premier League when you're chasing Man City and Man City in the, in the kind of form they've been in since, God knows when, November? When was it, when, was it, when did they last drop a point? <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> October, was it October was it, the 30th? October. Well, yeah. Was that when they got hammered at home by Crystal Palace? I, I, yeah, I remember that. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, it's, 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 it's ridiculous, isn't it? They're, they're literally... I mean, Chelsea have lost two Premier League games, I think, since September. and And yet they've completely nosedived out of the, cha- the the title race it's they they don't give you any chance you, you, you slip up then you you're out of it you're gone so liverpool come away if they get domestic cup competitions or they do well in the champions league then then, then brilliant they can they can still claim this to have been a very successful season mm. let's cast our eyes a bit downward Faye. is this a key week in the relegation struggle you've got watford at Burnley on Tuesday and home to Norwich on Friday. There were a few signs of life, weren't there, in that recovery at St James's? Yeah, there certainly were. And and actually, you know, that that was the start of of the big relegation push leading into the winter break, wasn't it, really? And a massive hammer blow for Newcastle, but relief for, for Watford and Claudio Ranieri. Maybe the tide is turning, but again, I, you know, I, I just... I'm not saying this as a Luton fan, I promise you, I'm really not. <laughs> but you are, I just don't I just don't think I, I don't think Watford have got it this season. I, 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 I think it's it's a step too far. Again, you know, we're talking about another club loving to change their manager. How can you ever have any consistency going forward when you when when you operate in that manner? It just it just doesn't doesn't work. Norwich under Dean Smith. I know everybody's written them off, but can you imagine if they went on a little bit of a run? Especially after that match against Everton. I know, look, I mean, that was a shocking own goal from Michael Keane in the first place. Um, and quite ironic that that was Norwich's first goal in something, I think it's like nine and a half hours and it was an own goal. <laughs> but equally, uh, you know, two goals in, in, in two minutes. Uh, could that be the turnaround? Or certainly, even if, uh, you know, and it's highly unlikely to save Norwich, they've been appalling this season. But at the same time, just them notching a couple of wins on the bounce potentially 
could start to worry other teams a little bit more. And it's that psychology that's going to be really crucial going into the next few matches, I think. Yeah, well, I suppose if they can string three wins together, it will have a bit of an impact. That will obviously need them to, to beat Watford. But also, they'll need to beat Palace, Dom, on February the 9th before they play, I think it's City and Liverpool. What do you make of Norwich? And, and equally, what do you make of Burnley? Because there's a club which is, is almost in danger of losing its religion a bit, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, let's start with, start with Norwich. I mean, I, I don't think the Norwich that that we've seen very often of late is 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 truly refre- reflective of the team that was promoted. I think I think the injuries and the COVID situation has hit them quite badly, and they've they've played games and and with with kids and and players who aren't ready yet for the Premier League, and they've been outclassed in a lot of them. I mean, I I watched the. I watched the Palace Norwich game over over Christmas, and I actually think that was one of Palace's least impressive performances of the season. And yet they blew Norwich away, and it, it didn't need to to play well against them. However, there is a resilience to them. Dean Smith has got things, and they are actually picking up the occasional win now and again over the course of twenty one matches which will give them a bit of heart. The problem that Newcastle and Burnley below them at the moment have is that they're just not winning any games. I, mean, I think they've won one each, haven't they? I mean, it's, 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 mm, and we're, yeah. we're, we're now in, in, in January. Burnley, that Watford game is so, so big for them because if they, if they beat Watford, then they're out of the bottom three and suddenly you're looking to spend a bit of the money from, from the Chris Wood transfer on a player of say Christian Benteke's ilk, that that type of player to to lead the line, and, and that may be all that it takes just to a little spur to, to to make them believe again and remind them of what they're good at. Because I think the the succession of cancelled games, the poor start to the season, which let's face it, they they they've endured before and recovered from. But this time they haven't been able to really recover from because they haven't been able to build any momentum because games keep getting cancelled or postponed, and uh, which which has checked all kind of, of forward momentum for them. It, it's 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 a real test because it's because they're going to have this this rush of games, this rush of fixtures, catch up matches, which will stretch would stretch a, a relatively small squad anyway. But a squad that's 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 now without its focal point in 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 Wood up top, with a, always the potential for more COVID around the fringes. Although I suspect most of them already had COVID now. I mean, I think a lot of these Premier League clubs are getting through the other side on that front because everybody's had it. It's it's a massive massive test, and it'll be about how whether whether Sean Dyche's motivation is still there whether his juices are still flowing in terms of let's keep Burnley in the division and and kick on and you'd like to think that they they would be but i suspect this season will have really got to him it's been unsettling i think the ownership issue would have also been unsettling as well you know you look at most takeovers and you think there's a, there's a there's grounds for optimism here we're going to spend a diff- we're going to enter a different caliber of spending let's say it hasn't really been the case at Burnley, I mean, Cornet was a was a great signing in the summer, but they probably needed two or three players like that as opposed to just one, just to refresh things and and keep things ticking along and, and moving. And everything about this season's just felt a bit laboured. 
So it's a real test of Daesh's ability to to motivate that squad and, and to, to instigate some kind of recovery. They've got the games in hand. They could do it. They win one match, they're out of the, the relegation zone and they'd still have two games in hand on, on Watford and two on Newcastle and, th- and three on Norwich. So that it's in their hands, but it's still a big ask and so much hinges on what they do on Tuesday. Yeah, well, only 17 games played so far. You know, they've suffered more than most in the whole charade of postponements, let's put it like that. Let's get on to that, uh, if we could, please, Faye. You know, as I say, you were meant to be at the North London derby yesterday uh, before you know, Arsenal used the situation to their advantage, let's put it like that. Are the Premier League, you think, culpable in allowing clubs effectively to choose when they play, or are we missing the point here that, you know, essentially the clubs are the Premier League, they run the Premier League, and, you know, someone like Richard Masters, a, a very highly paid but and terribly... Uh, uncommunicative uh, functionary. Look, the Premier League are in a difficult position. I don't agree that anybody um, should be calling for the rules to be changed halfway through a season. I think the rules were flawed at the beginning of the season. That's the big problem. I got so much grief from Arsenal fans on Twitter over the weekend for my comments which weren't even directed at Arsenal, by the way. It's just that people don't seem to read tweets. They interpret them how they like to interpret them, don't they? And many Mm. Arsenal fans feel that that they're being attacked. This isn't an all-round attack at Arsenal. This is just the kind of straw that broke the camel's back this match, I think, because it's been going on for so long. And because the reason... or part of the reason that Arsenal didn't have enough players, you know, because, by the way, they did tick the boxes for a postponement, in, in regard to, to the Premier League's rules, they didn't have enough players um, to, to field, but that's because Granit Xhaka got sent off. They picked up two injuries in that League Cup match as well and they sent two players out on loan before the transfer window ended, which in this kind of scenario, I do criticise them from that point of view. It's nothing to do with hindering a, a young player's progression going forward by stopping them going out on loan. But when you've got two weeks left of the transfer window, why not just wait till the end of January when we all know that Omicron has has decimated the fixture list over the past four or five weeks? That's my personal opinion on that. However, you cannot blame Arsenal for, for requesting the postponement in the first place because everybody else has done it. What I do get frustrated about is is AFCON being a, a reason to postpone games. That's not a reason. Mm. We've known that this tournament was happening and when it was happening for a very long time. However, I go back to the point, it's not Arsenal's fault. Why, why, why would they not do it when everybody else is, is doing it? If it's if it suits them, and and you could argue, you know, it probably would have been a good time for them to have faced Tottenham at the weekend. Arguably, after putting in that performance against against Liverpool the other day, there's no Son for for Tottenham. So all of those kind of arguments and defensive things become an irrelevance. That the problem is the rules. The problem is that they are very much open to interpretation. As you say, that the clubs are the Premier League to a certain point, which is why it's then, you know, amusing to to hear the infighting in some ways. But there's no consistency. And I think that's the issue here. And that's another reason why the rules can't be changed halfway through the season. Because it feels as if there's been more lenience given of late 
to clubs requesting postponements than there perhaps was at the beginning because Arsenal wanted a couple of matches um, postponed when they had COVID cases and they were they they were declined those. Tottenham's point is that they had asked for the their match against Leicester to be postponed so that they could fit in their Europa Conference League match against Wren and stay in the competition. They obviously eventually were, were kicked out of the competition because they couldn't fulfil that fixture. I can totally understand Tottenham's frustration. Eventually that match did get postponed, but that was because of Leicester's COVID cases and it was too late for, for Tottenham to be able to, to play that match. So this is the problem. You know, when you're talking about this, there's so many different factors. There's so many, well, they were allowed it, but we weren't. And this was allowed and this wasn't. But under the rules, Arsenal were well within their rights to request a postponement. And that is the Premier League's fault because Mm. they haven't established, you know, a proper set of rules that are not open, A, to interpretation and B, to misuse. Yeah, forgive me if I'm wrong here, but I thought there was a chance to do something when when I think the rules were amended last month but and and people will say well okay you know maybe we are being a bit more lenient now because it's a player welfare issue they've been overstretched because they've been playing in in covid hit squads i suppose and the reality is that we know that most clubs will take advantage of a loophole given an opportunity i suppose you know we're looking at consistency aren't we dom you know, as as Faye said, Spurs were kicked out of, of the Europa Conference League because they couldn't field a team because of COVID. Now, but on the other hand, you've got Leeds winning with kids and you've got West Ham running on empty. Where is the consistency? And, you know, do you feel for those clubs, you know, let's forget all, all about the tribalism and everything else, but do you feel for some of the clubs who are actually being compromised by the system? Well, look, I feel for, I feel sorry for, for for all the all the clubs out there because Omicron and and COVID nineteen has put strains on everybody, including the Premier League. I mean, this is this is uncharted territory. We've never been here before. I've just had a quick glance at Arsenal's bench on the opening day of the season at Brentford, and under current rules, they wouldn't have qualified for a postponement I mean that's not revelatory but they had they had Hector Bellerin they had Rob Holding they had Cedric Suarez they had Nuno Tavares Maitland Niles and then Ian Saka and, and Ryan Nelson on the bench so you know it, it wouldn't have qualified for for a postponement but when Omicron comes along and, and completely wrecks a squad mid-season and and the, the Premier League need I think the Premier League would argue they have got consistency. That their their rules are, are applied to every single match they that comes along. And and if Arsenal don't have the requisite number of outfield players or are lacking goalkeepers, then then the game is off. That's that is the rule. So as as Faye says, they they they've not done anything wrong. They've the rules are there for this reason. What's and and that's that's why that's applied. The, the inconsistency of anything is across competitions. You know, it's UEFA in terms of the the Conference League. It's the the EFL in terms of the League Cup, and there is inconsistency within that competition. When you know Leighton Orient get chucked out of the competition for not being yeah. able to field a team, and yet Liverpool get to postpone a semi final um, when they're in the sort of well, Omicron driven situation. 
But then the EFL don't want to chuck out Liverpool for the <laughs> for their showpiece their showpiece semi finals, and it's that that's where the inconsistency is. I, it is frustrating, but I, I, the Premier League clubs voted through these rules. Fourteen of them agreed to to that these were the stipulations that we should have, and that if you haven't got thirteen outfield players or or you haven't got two goalkeepers, then then you can postpone a game, and they agreed with that. They went with it. They can, they can, there, there will always be suspicion because of the tribalism. You say because because of the vested interest, uh, you know, within within the Premier League and the fears of relegation and the the hopes for qualifying for Europe or winning titles, etc. And because there will always be a lack of transparency because of of medical confidentiality, doctors will not be revealing which players have got COVID. It's it's only a few Premier League clubs that have have been willing to talk about this openly a lot of them won't comment on covid cases you get you just have to draw your own conclusions as to why a player is there one minute and they're not there the next and happens to be out for seven to ten days and then you chuck in the vaccination issue as well incidentally and that that's you know it gets murkier still but it's it is what it is it is it's desperate and, and, and you, know, you know what we can we'll, we'll sit here and whinge now and 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 say that oh this is really unfair that some clubs are having to play and others aren't well given that it appears that the winter break is still taking place as opposed to being used as an opportunity to catch up games there's going to be they're going to be clubs playing four matches in a week at the end of this season the clubs that have you know at the moment have got games in hand on everybody else their complaints will be pretty loud when that happens and and they won't there won't be any consistency in their performances then and it will it will throw up freak results and and there will be another debate over the integrity of the competition then it's it's just we're just going to have two batches of that one where we get tired teams playing now like west ham like like just have a look just look at the groups who've played 21 matches and then come the end of the season they're going to be all these these teams that have Hardly, hardly played at all in this period. Are going to have to play four games in a week, probably twice. It's, it's going to warp the competition, but it's, it's, and the complaints will be very, very loud. But it is what it is. We've never been in the situation before. The country's never been in this situation before. It's going to throw up wild scenarios. Yeah, and I suppose that ultimately it's a question of of culture. Now, look, if you order certain players to do ten press ups, they'll do nine when you're not looking. If you give certain clubs the opportunity to make money, no matter how questionable the source, they'll cash in. Self-interest is institutionalised in modern football and corners, sadly, are routinely cut. The Premier League's central weakness was always going to end in this sort of chaos. Now, in my book, now, you know, I'm a dreamer, but hopefully I'm not the only one. If a player's on a professional contract... He's free from the virus and isn't injured. He's available. Get on with it. That's got to be better than the current nonsense, hasn't it? Do you agree? Please let me know. In the meantime, thanks to Dom and Faye for their insight. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 